Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscamol, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I am your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike the Sound Guy, and we are broadcasting to you from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina. Welcome to July. We are officially in a new fiscal year for most of the country. And we got a lot to talk about, again, as we seem to have every single week. I tell you, there are days where I get so sick of this podcast. It's not the recording part. Talking into a mic is fun. I like Mike. He's a nice guy. But prepping the outline, fuck's sake, it is always, like, there are days where I think I've heard a story already, and I haven't. It's just a basically an identical story with different people. That became why we had the third rule of Fisk. Uh, so we got a lot to talk about. We have 21 pages of stuff. The Law 140 is not going to be a true Law 140. We're going to spend some time talking about Justice Anthony Kennedy and his retirement from the Supreme Court, what that means, uh, what Democrats can do, which is not much. Uh, also kind of figuring out how to fix some of the controversies when it comes to Supreme Court justices in the future. So we're going to talk about that in the back 10, 15 minutes of the episode. Realistically, it's going to take longer than that, but that is not the notes. You know, So like usually when we do a Law 140 on the law, I have notes on the law. Uh, so I don't have as much notes this time. This is 21 pages of pure criminal justice fuckery. Uh, but before we get into it, couple notes. First, thank you to everyone who sent in questions for next Monday, uh, which as a reminder will be the next edition of What the Fisk, WT Fisk, where we answer your questions. Uh, and that is because starting July 3rd uh, through the weekend, I'm going to be out of town. Every Independence Day, I tried to go visit my grandparents. And I'm, because July 4th is in the middle of the week this time, uh, I'm taking an extended not really vacation because I have to bring work with me, but it will be an out-of-town vacation-ish. So thank you all. We're all set to go on the What the Fisk. We're going to actually record that right after Mike and I finish this episode. If you have not already done so, please make sure to join the conversation online. We are at Fiskamall on Twitter. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. If you'd like to leave us a written comment, you can do that on our website, Fiskamall.com. That's F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you'd like to become one of our financial supporters, one of our patrons, you can do that on patreon.com slash fisk. That is patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. Just $7 a month helps us keep this place going, keeps Mike paid. And in exchange for it, I do uh, try to offer you all some bonus content. There are a few bonus Law 140s up there if you're so inclined to check it out. All right. So as far as the political stuff goes, I usually spend a few minutes at the start of every podcast talking about politics. It is my way of uh, I basically offer the criminal justice fuckery as a lure to force you to listen to my political rantings. Um, but I don't really, it's not really a rant per se. I've just noticed in the past week, like, and I've known this for a while since we elected our beloved Papaya Potus, Donald Trump, that there is a true sickness among Republicans, especially high profile Republicans. And this past week, it's just, it's gotten. Like a lot of stuff has happened all at once to highlight how bad it is. They're just, we have truly ghoulish, soulless people leading this party. So let me give you some examples. I have pieced together a few quotes from folks. Uh, you have our Attorney General, uh, Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III, we call him A.G. Beauregard, uh, who decided that this whole policy of separating kids from their families would be funny. 
and made a joke about it. So from this particular story, I'm going to give you links to all these in the show notes. Uh, He said, and this is a quote from him, The rhetoric we hear from the other side on this issue, as on many others, has become radicalized. We hear views on television today that are on the lunatic fringe, frankly, and what is perhaps most galling is the hypocrisy. These same people live in gated communities, many of them, and are featured at events where you have to have an ID to come in and hear them speak. They like a little security around themselves. And if you try to scale the fence, believe me, they'd be even too happy to have you arrested and separated from your children. To which he laughs. And of course, the people he's talking to, this criminal justice legal foundation, they were all fucking yucking it up, hooting and hollering and applauding like it's fucking humorous. There's nothing humorous about separating kids from their parents. People getting arrested and being separated from their kids as part of normal law enforcement, guess what? That's a fucking problem, too. That's the entire reason why we have an attorney general and law enforcement in the first place is to enforce laws on the hope that people won't break them by virtue of knowing they could be caught and prosecuted. You fucking imbecile. So that's him. You then have uh, Dinesh D'Souza, a Trumpist intellectual. He's also a felon pardoned by the Moscow Muppet just a a few weeks ago. Uh, He decided to tweet out a couple hashtags, including hashtag burn the Jews and hashtag bring back slavery. From that story, it says a conservative filmmaker pardoned by President Donald Trump has been slammed for retweeting Twitter posts with the hashtags, hashtag burn the Jews and hashtag bring back slavery. Right-wing commentator Dinesh D'Souza, who has mocked the survivors of the Parkland, Florida school shooting and suggested Rosie O'Donnell should be prosecuted for her campaign donations, was pardoned by Trump in May. D'Souza had been given five years of probation with eight months to be served in a community confinement center after pleading guilty. He pled guilty, admitted his his guilt uh, to a federal charge of making illegal campaign contributions in 2014. Uh, So then you also have Dana Lash, the darling of the NRA, another Trumpist intellectual. So she ended up having a, uh, an interview with one of the random ass people on NRA TV about reporters. And her quotes were that she wanted to see them curb stomped. Now, if you've heard that phrase before, you probably have seen the movie American History X, where Edward Norton plays a Nazi. And there's a very graphic depiction of curb stomping where he forces a guy to actually bite the curb and then kicks his boot through the guy's head. That's what curb stomping means. So, of course, after this uh, shooting this past week at the Capitol Gazette, people unearthed this particular interview with Lash, uh, who then, rather than just saying, yeah, I fucked up, probably shouldn't have said stuff about, you know, curb stomping reporters and how they're the worst things to exist in the country and et cetera, et cetera, tried to argue that no, in fact, it was the stories that she wanted to have curb stomped. How the fuck you would curb stomp a piece of paper? I don't know, but I'm not a Trumpist intellectual. Uh, You have John Cardillo who is uh, another Trumper, and he has some particular uh, TV show on Newsmax. I don't watch any of their shit, so I don't know what it is. But this uh, young lady, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, won a Democrat primary in New York this past week, and she is a Democrat socialist. So Cardillo thought, or Cardillo, I don't even know how to pronounce his name. He thought it would be funny to go find a picture of her childhood home and tweet it out to his people, uh, saying, quote, this is the Yorktown Heights, very nice area, home, that Ocasio 2018 grew up in before going off to Ivy League Brown University, a far cry from the Bronx hood upbringing she's selling. Now, a couple points. The house is just kind of meh. 
So it's it's weird that that would be a point. You know, it's like saying that you lived on a normal run-of-the-mill mattress and it's different from living on an army cot. That was one of the tweets that someone had tweeted out in response. Uh, to her credit, Miss Cor- Arcasio-Cortez like shredded the guy in the responses. She didn't go to Brown. She went to Boston University, responded about the house she lived in, et cetera, et cetera. But you have that kind of dickishness. Uh, you have Arthur Jones, bona fide Nazi, actual avowed Nazi. He is officially the only GOP candidate for the 3rd Congressional District in Illinois. From that story, it says, quote, Illinois Republicans botched four opportunities to stop an avowed Nazi from representing their party in a Chicago area congressional district. Arthur Jones, a Holocaust denier who will appear on the November ballot as the GOP candidate against Democratic Representative Dan Lipinski, has become campaign fodder for Democrats as they seek to defeat Governor Bruce Rauner. And some Republicans even fear the taint from Jones's extremist views poses a threat to the party up and down the ticket. Uh, first, it's morally wrong, and I think it's really harmful to the party. This guy's a complete nutcase. He's a Nazi, said conservative GOP state representative David McSweeney. McSweeney's comments come just days after the filing deadline passed for qualifying a third-party candidate for the general election, which could have provided a safe harbor for Illinois Republican votes. Prior to that, the party had also failed to recruit a candidate to challenge Jones in the primary election, failed to knock him off the primary ballot, and wasn't able to field a write-in candidate against him in the primary. So those are the four opportunities they've missed. Why did they miss them? Because they like having a Nazi on the ballot. They just don't like the repercussions of it. But not to be outdone, here in my great state of North Carolina, uh, we have Russell Walker. Now, Russell Walker is the North Carolina guy who filed suit in South Carolina. So, yes, you heard that right. He lives in North Carolina, but sued in South Carolina, trying to stop them from taking down Confederate monuments. Now, of course, that case got dismissed because it was utterly fucking ridiculous. But then he decided to walk out of the courthouse and talk to a group of reporters. And I actually have a clip of what he said. Here it is. Again, I don't believe it's a symbol of racism. I don't believe it's a symbol of slavery. That's my personal view, but how they feel is their business, but it, it, would, be, it would be ludicrous for me to tell you how they feel. Hey, I get down the street, I see Martin, Martin Luther King. Um, I shouldn't say that. Martin Luther King. I mean, should I rip, this, should I rip the, the signs down or, or insist that they, they, they take Martin, Martin Luther King Street down and arrest that stuff? Martin Luther Coon. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. Yeah, no shit, dude. You know, should you take those things down? No, because Dr. King and the people supporting the civil rights movement were trying to get equal fucking rights for folks being oppressed by dumbasses like you, people supporting traitors to the country, folks who rebelled against the United States of America, and yet for whatever reason we have their fucking participation trophies all over the damn country. But not to be outdone. So bear in mind, that was last year. That was August of 2017. This guy ran in a contested primary to be the Republican nominee for a House district here in North Carolina, and he won. He won the nomination with almost two-thirds of the vote. And then this past week, the NCGOP has disavowed him because apparently calling him Martin Luther Kuhn is fine, but from the story, it says, quote, a website tied to a candidate for the North Carolina General Assembly says God is a racist white supremacist and that Jews are descended from Satan. 
Russell Walker is a Republican candidate running for State House District 48. Subquote, what is wrong with being a white supremacist? God is a racist and a white supremacist, the website connected to Walker says. Uh, subquote, someone or group has to be supreme, and that group is the whites of the world. Uh, Walker has authored multiple essays and other articles on the site, and he has said that it belongs to him. Uh, some of those essays include comments such as, subquote, God made the races, so he is the greatest racist ever. Uh, the Jews are not Semitic, they are Satanic, as they all descend from Satan. MLK wanted to destroy the Caucasian race through mixing and integration. He was an agent of Satan. On Tuesday, after the Martin Luther Coon, this is the sidebar, so after Martin Luther Coon, a year ago, on Tuesday of this week, the North Carolina Republican Party withdrew its support because these essays just go entirely too far. You know, so this is the nature of the Republican Party under Trump. Now, I know my Democrat friends swear that this all predates everything. I disagree. It got bad under Obama. It's gotten far worse under Trump. But under W, it really wasn't like this. Under Clinton, it really wasn't like this. I know because I was active in the party. I saw the people that were around me. But now you've got people that just thrive on being assholes, like Attorney General Beauregard, like Dana Lash, like John Cardillo. You have folks who just casually call for genocide, like Dinesh D'Souza, hashtag burn the Jews. And you have bona fide racists and Nazis on the Republican fucking ballot for legislative races in at least two different states. Oh, I'm also going to count Iowa and Steve King, so we'll make that three. You know, something is wrong. Something is seriously wrong with the party. I don't know if it's fixable. I don't know how you even go about fixing it because these are the people controlling the levers of power and the donors don't care. I mean, as long as they're getting their preferred policies, they'll donate to these types of assholes. It's fucking ridiculous. So that's it for the political rant. I'm just distressed at how things are because I'm not a Democrat. I don't think I could in good faith become a Democrat because I'm not a liberal. You know, in some capacity, I sound progressive on things like criminal justice reform because I despise the government and think everything that it does has a natural and inevitable tendency to do poorly. But that same type of philosophy I apply to criminal justice, I also apply to everything else. Like, for example, the government running my health care. And that makes me a heretic among Democrats. So one day I would like a party that I could be a part of without having to make common cause with a bunch of fucking assholes and racists. So we'll see. All right. In criminal justice news, we'll start with the court stuff. The, uh, there are a lot of big Supreme Court decisions that came down in the last week. The one particular one that folks have focused on from the standpoint of uh, government power is the Muslim ban version 3.0 was upheld. Uh, not going to talk too much about it. That was not a surprise. Those of you that happened to follow me on Twitter, I said last year, that the case was going to be, uh, the order was going to be upheld because the patently uh, problematic parts, the stuff that was obviously flawed, was stripped out, and that the odds were good that the Supreme Court was not going to look at Trump's tweets and comments uh, to decide a case that is going to govern future presidents. You know, the Supreme Court, justices, judges, lawyers, they're fundamentally institutionalists, so they don't overturn precedent often. They're more common to distinguish it away. They particularly don't really touch precedent relating to core constitutional stuff. 
you know, if it's a precedent relating to a, a statutory interpretation or something like that, they change those a little bit more flexibly because the statutes can be changed at any time. But something as core as a president's national security authority, they're not going to change that for future presidents because this president is unfit for office and can't control this fucking Twitter account. So I'm going to give you a link to the uh, the Twitter thread on it. You could check that out. Out of the Fifth Circuit, this is a – so we're not even to the qualified immunity discussion yet. We're only at a court allowing a district lawsuit to proceed. But this is a reminder that you have a lot of perverts working in your schools, especially the school resource officers. So from the summary of the facts – and I'm going to give you a link to the full opinion so you can read it. So from the summary, it says – Uh, For purposes of this appeal, we take as true the amended complaint's factual allegations. Those allegations describe how $50 went missing during a sixth grade choir class. Pause. Sixth grade. So we're talking about preteens here. A sixth grade choir class at Houston's public Lanier Middle School. Assistant Principal Verlinda Higgins was brought in to investigate. When no money turned up, the school police officer, subquote, suggested that girls like to hide things in their bras and panties. It's disgusting to me that a police officer in a school is busy thinking about preteen girls' bras and panties. Let me just throw that in there as a sidebar. Uh, it continues, quote, Higgins took all 22 girls, all 22 of them, in the choir class to the school nurse who strip-searched them taking them one at a time into a bathroom where she, subquote, checked around the waistband of their panties, loosened their bras, and checked under their shirts. The girls, subquote, were made to lift their shirts, so they were exposed from the shoulder to the waist. No parents were notified, despite the girls' requests, and surprise, no money was found. The Houston Independent School District allegedly permits its school officials to conduct invasive searches of students' persons, but provides no training as to how to do so legally. And it it gets worse from there. So I'm going to give you the opinion. But basically, this particular school strip-searched 22 preteen girls because someone lost $50, and they thought the girls were responsible even though they were not. So that lawsuit would be allowed to proceed. In general research news, the very Institute of Justice, who we've talked about in several podcasts, they do a lot of good work. They have a new study out called The New Dynamics of Mass Incarceration, looking at the interplay of local jails, state prisons, federal prisons, trying to figure out jurisdiction by jurisdiction where, in fact, there actually is reform related to mass incarceration and where there's not. So I'm going to give you a link to the full study, but here are a few key takeaways. Quote, although we are in a widely recognized era of criminal justice reform, the overall decline in incarceration masks distinct trends that vary from state to state and county to county. Some states have meaningfully reduced incarceration, but others are stuck near all-time highs, continuing to incarcerate more and more people or are shifting populations between prisons and jails. As reforms have taken root across the country, state incarceration rates have fractured into four separate trends. Decarceration, stagnation, jurisdictional shifts between prisons and jails, and continued growth. In some jurisdictions, reductions in prison populations have been offset by increases in the jail population and vice versa. 
And in some states that have shown significant progress in reducing overall incarceration, these declines have been driven almost exclusively by the larger cities. Small cities and towns continue to see incarceration rates grow. And the crazy part about that is the sheer, and this is mentioned further in the study, but also some of their other studies they've done on the costs of incarceration, is that these smaller towns don't have the financial resources, don't have the taxpayer resources to be running these ever burgeoning jails, you know, at the capacities that they're at, but they do it anyway. So it, it's nuts. So we're going to give you a link to that. In federal news, you have actual Nazis. Well, let me not say this. I don't know for sure. I'm not going to say you have actual Nazis working for the Department of Homeland Security. I'm just going to say that there's, there's probably a good chance. All right. So those of you that have listened to the podcast, you've heard me talk about white nationalists. One of the things that they like to use to signal to other white nationalists that they're part of the same team uh, is 1488, 1488. The 14 is a reference to the 14 words, a very popular white nationalist motto that says, we must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. And then the 88 is a reference to 8 is a H in the alphabet. So 88 is HH for Heil Hitler. So this is a big white supremacist thing. I think it's fucking stupid, but that's just me. Well, the DHS has released an actual press release. Uh, the headline is 14 words. The first three words of it are we must secure, just like the actual 14 words. Uh, there are 14 points in the release. And in the last point, they're using a proportion about the number of uh, fear, credible fear asylum claims, how many of them actually are granted asylum. Now, normally, with proportions, you, you use 100 as your base so that you can do like a percentage. But no, not here. It says, quote, on average, out of 88 claims that pass the credible fear screening, fewer than 13 will ultimately result in a grant of asylum. So you've got the 14 and the 88 embedded all throughout this official press release on an official government website. So we'll give you a link to it. Uh, also... In immigration news, ICE is rigging its software to make sure that it has a pretext to keep undocumented immigrants locked up during their removal proceedings. Here's a story from TechDirt. Uh, actually, no, sorry, I'm going to give you the link to TechDirt, but I'm actually going to give you an excerpt from Reuters that TechDirt quotes, but then adds a bunch of other stuff. So this piece came from Reuters itself. It says, quote, to conform to Trump's immigration policies, Reuters has learned, ICE modified a software tool officers have been using since 2013 when deciding whether an immigrant should be detained or released on bond. The computer-based risk classification assessment uses statistics to determine an immigrant's flight risk and danger to society. Previously, the tool automatically recommended either detain or release. But last year, I, an ICE spokesman said the agency removed the release recommendation. So now you can go to a judge and say, judge, the software told me to do it, uh, but you rigged the software to make that happen. So in state-by-state -state criminal justice fuckery out of Alabama, uh, this actually isn't a criminal justice news piece. This is a piece going back to my political rant out of Huntsville, a Trumpist school teacher went to an anti-ICE protest. He decided to be a counter-protester and pulled a gun on people. Uh, from that story, it says, quote, A former Huntsville City Schools teacher is in custody after police said he pulled out a gun at a protest in Big Spring Park. 
Lieutenant Michael Johnson of the Huntsville Police Department confirmed that Shane Ryan Seeley was arrested Saturday and charged with menacing and reckless endangerment. Huntsville City School spokesperson Keith Ward confirmed that Seeley previously taught at Grissom High School. The Families Belong Together rally was part of a nationwide day of action protesting the Trump administration's policy of forcibly separating children from their parents. Officials say the incident happened around 12 p.m. when the event began. Police say an agitator, Seeley, came to the rally in counter-protest. When he got into a verbal confrontation with someone, the two got into an argument and Seeley pulled out his gun. Uh, so we'll see what happens with that guy. Out of California, we have the fifth rule of Fisk. When people say blue lives matter, they don't mean the dark blue ones. A black firefighter was doing his normal inspections and a bunch of white folks called the police. From the story, it says, quote, a black firefighter conducting city required inspections around homes in the Oakland Hills was reported to police on one occasion and on another questioned and videotaped by a resident who found him suspicious, even though he was in a full uniform with his fire truck parked nearby. Every summer in the city, firefighters fan out to the Oakland Hills to do vegetation management inspections in which they check for hazards like tree limbs hanging over chimneys or a buildup of dead plants. The goal is to lessen the chances of a wildfire spreading out of control from house to house by creating a defensible space on every property. Firefighters typically try to speak with residents before they enter their yards, knocking on doors or ringing doorbells. If no one is home, the firefighters are supposed to do the inspection anyway, going through side yards and backyards if they can while taking photos and notes. Vince Cradell, who supervises the inspection program, said firefighters absolutely have the right to conduct exterior property inspections while residents aren't home, as listed plainly in the California Fire Code. The department sends out pamphlets before the program begins, hosts community meetings, and gets the word out through neighborhood groups, Crudell said. Yet firefighter Kevin Moore, while wearing a full uniform with a radio and clipboard, was reported to police for doing a standard inspection. Uh, so it goes on from there, but basically someone called 911, and actually his partner was at 911 dispatch at the time and knew he was on that particular street. Uh, a separate person emailed police the security footage from their home security camera, uh, and it goes on from there. It's absolutely ridiculous. That's out of California and Florida. So Florida makes a lot of appearances in this week's list. We got one, two, three, four stories out of Florida. So we'll start on Biscayne Park. Uh, this is a third rule of Fisk, but with a new spin on it. You'll remember the third rule of Fisk is that there are no new stories, just new names and jurisdictions. And we've talked before about police framing innocent folks for crimes they didn't commit. You're actually going to have several stories this week on that very topic. But in this case, the reason for framing them is a little bit different. So let me just give you the story. It says, quote, the former police chief and two officers in Biscayne Park face federal charges of framing a 16-year-old in four unsolved burglaries. The motivation prosecutors charged Monday was keeping a perfect score on crime statistics. Federal prosecutors said police chief Raimondo Eteziano and two cops acting under his authority lied about the arrests to wow the small village's elected leaders with their crime-solving savvy. 
Subquote, the existence of this fictitious 100% clearance rate of reported burglaries was used by Teziano to gain favor with elected officials and concerned citizens, according to the indictment. The officers involved, Charlie Dayub and Raul Fernandez, collected evidence from four unsolved burglaries, completed four arrest reports, and created false narratives to imply the teen, identified as TD in the indictment, had broken into four unoccupied homes, At a village council meeting in July 2013, a month after the teen had been arrested, Teziano then claimed a perfect closeout rate for burglary cases in the mostly residential community near Miami Shores. So basically, you're framing people to keep your stats. You know, that's like a Baltimore the Wire type thing. Uh, Out of Clay County and Nassau County, so this is combined in one story, but two police officers were both fired for lying about different reasons, uh, one of whom put an innocent person in jail. From that story, it says, quote, prosecutors this month filed charges against a Nassau County deputy. They say framed innocent people and a Clay County detective accused of staging a crime scene after a hit and run. Both men, the state attorney's office said, lied in official documents about the incidents. Clay County Homicide Detective Mark Andrews and Nassau County Deputy Kyle Thal were fired by their agencies. This month, prosecutors filed charges that said after Andrews was involved in a New Year's Eve hit and run, he staged a scene to make it look like his car was stolen. Then he lied to his colleagues investigating the crash. And in Nassau County, after a string of complaints from defense attorneys, police investigated one of their own for lying about conducting drug tests. They examined four traffic stops in which Thal claimed to have identified drugs with field tests when in fact he hadn't. In one case, he falsely identified aspirin as ecstasy. In another, he falsely identified a small plastic bag as holding methamphetamine. It didn't. And it goes on from there. Out of Flagler, we have another scenario of the third rule of Fisk. This one involves judicial misconduct. From that story, it says, quote, The Florida Supreme Court booted Seventh Circuit Judge Scott DuPont from the bench following the recommendations of an ethics panel that said DuPont showed a, subquote, reckless disregard for the truth. DuPont was elected to the circuit bench in 2010 and was paid $160,000 a year as a circuit judge. The Judicial Qualifications Commission, in a document on April 11th, stated that it had proved that, subquote, Judge DuPont abused his position and showed himself to be unfit by ordering money taken from litigants unlawfully, intentionally violating judicial campaign rules in a way that caused permanent harm to private citizens, prioritizing campaigning for re-election over lawful performance of his duties, and announcing to the public that he would ignore his judicial oath. Furthermore, Judge DuPont's testimony to the JQC was at times, subquote, not worthy of belief. Uh, So basically, this guy, there's a whole bunch of campaign related stuff. So he tried to argue that the guy running against him had a criminal record when, in fact, he didn't. Uh, Also said that he would never find any law unconstitutional ever, no matter what. Uh, rescheduled first appearances to to accommodate his campaign schedule and then never actually told anyone about it. And the list goes on from there. So we give you that link. And then in Miami Beach, we have the first appearance of the first rule of Fisk. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. Uh, So I'm going to note on the front end that Florida has a state law that if you're fishing, hunting, or whatever else, you're allowed to openly carry a firearm. So a group of guys who carry wanted to go fishing. And they told the police ahead of time saying, hey, 
we're going to go to this pier to fish. We're going to have our guns. Please be forewarned because folks might call you on us. Uh, the police showed up, pulled their guns, injured at least one of the guys anyway. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, six men who openly carried guns on their hips as they walked onto a Miami Beach pier with fishing equipment Sunday say they told Miami Beach Chief of Police Daniel Oates they would be coming. The police who detained them committed assault and battery, they claim. Oates tells a different story. He said that the members of Florida Carry gave no notice before dropping in on South Beach's South Point Park Pier. Uh, for his part, New Smyrna Beach resident and Florida Carry Executive Director Sean Carana forwarded to the Miami Herald a letter that says, subquote, on June 24th, 2018, a few friends and I will be open carrying holstered handguns while fishing off of South Point Pier in Miami Beach. The letter quotes Florida Statute 790.25 subpart 3 subpart H, which allows a person hunting, camping, or fishing to openly carry a gun. And the letter continues that he's writing Oates because, subquote, I'm sure there will be citizens that do not know the law. They may contact law enforcement when they see someone open carrying a holstered handgun. None of the citizens in South Point Park called police Sunday, but a Miami Beach Park Ranger did call police around 9.50 in the morning when the first four men to arrive quoted the statute to him. So this is all ridiculous, but we're going to note these are white guys. So they weren't shot dead. We're going to talk about that a little bit later in Oregon. Uh, but one of them was, in fact, injured and taken to the hospital. And out of everyone, not a single person was charged and all of the guns were returned because they weren't breaking the fucking law. Uh, so that's out of Florida in Georgia. So I had to decide whether or not this would be a Georgia story or an Alabama story. We decided to make it a Georgia story because this is where the indictment happened from the story. It says, quote, a Fulton County grand jury has indicted an Alabama corrections officer on a slew of charges related to allegations he raped two women in Sandy Springs. Matthew Lee Moore was indicted this week on rape, aggravated assault, aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, aggravated sodomy, aggravated sexual battery, false imprisonment, possession of a firearm during the commission of a felony, possession of a knife during the commission of a felony, and impersonating a police officer. Moore was arrested and charged by Sandy Springs police. The first alleged assault occurred June 17th of 2010 when the victim said she met Moore a few days earlier. The woman said they both agreed to meet at a hotel in Sandy Springs. During that encounter, prosecutors said Moore was wearing a police uniform, complete with a badge and belt containing pepper spray and a handgun. The victim told police that while they were inside the room, Moore ordered her to lie on the bed, and that's when he raped her. The second incident, which occurred November 15th of 2015, stemmed from Moore meeting the second woman on a dating website. During an encounter at her home, Moore asked for the woman to give him a massage. After that, he allegedly tied her up, cut off her clothing, and demanded that she do whatever he asked. Moore also pointed a firearm at the victim, raped her, and recorded the entire incident on his cell phone. Witnesses saw Moore with his pants down after the woman somehow escaped and ran into another part of the house where people were sitting. Uh, Moore then brandished a firearm and threatened to hurt everyone in the room before leaving the home. Police were dispatched to the home where they found a bag stuffed with zip ties, stockings, and handcuffs. Those handcuffs were inscribed with the name of the detention center in Alabama where Moore worked. They also found DNA at the scene that matched him. So think of those. That's just two of those stories. Imagine how many other women he did this to and didn't get caught. Uh, that's out of Georgia. In Illinois, 
So we've talked in Chicago about dirty cop Reynaldo Guevara. And uh, go back to episode 42 and 47. This is the guy who lied his ass off repeatedly, framing people, got caught for it, so started taking the fifth, refusing to testify as a result. Well, a federal jury on Friday awarded $17.175 million to a man who spent 21 years behind bars for a murder he didn't commit. Another case tied to former Chicago cop Reynaldo Guevara, who invoked his Fifth Amendment right hundreds of times as he was questioned on the stand during the case. Jacques Rivera was imprisoned for the 1988 murder of 16-year-old Felix Valentine, who was shot to death in the West Humboldt Park neighborhood. Rivera broke down in tears immediately upon hearing the jury ruled in his favor on the first count of violation of due process. In the hallway afterward, there were fist bumps, hugging, and tears. Subquote, 21 years, this guy put me away, away from my family, said Rivera, wearing a shirt to court with the motto, trust and believe. Outside the courtroom, he pulled out a cell phone to call his family members, saying, subquote, we didn't have this when I went to prison. This guy spent 21 years of his life in prison for a murder he didn't commit, and because Guevara lied about it, the actual killer is still out there. Uh, so that's in Illinois, out of Kentucky. In Louisville, we have the third rule of Fisk. Go back to episode 41 where you heard about this uh, same scenario basically happening in California. From the story, it says, quote, Louisville, sorry, Louisville. I always go through this. Louisville, it's Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, Louisville police mishandled allegations that teens were sexually abused and harassed in its scandal-plagued Explorer Scout program, according to a 90-page report compiled by a former federal prosecutor. The long-awaited special review released by the city on Wednesday identified, subquote, violations of policy and mistakes in judgment, some significant. That's a fucking understatement of the year. So I'm going to give you a link to the report, but basically there were two separate officers that were propositioning kids. Didn't matter what gender they were. They were asking the boys for sex. They were asking the girls for sex. Didn't make a lick of difference. Sending them nude pictures and so on. Uh, at least seven teenagers have been abused that we know about in this particular program. So we'll give you a link to all that stuff. The story gets kind of kind of from there. Uh, so that's in Kentucky. Out of Louisiana, the floor-to-ceiling clusterfuck of criminal justice. Uh, this is some funny shit. A legal advocacy group filed an ethics complaint this week against four Louisiana district attorneys over their practice of shifting thousands of traffic tickets into lucrative pretrial diversion programs. Now, I'm going to do a subquote here. Not only is this lucrative, the, instead of court costs, this money goes straight to the DAs. This is how fucking ridiculous this is. Uh, it continues, quote, it accused the prosecutors of leveraging their authority into a money-making enterprise for their offices. The complaint urges the state board of ethics to investigate the growing use of diversion programs around the state and to force district attorneys to refund millions of dollars to delinquent motorists who paid diversion fees, subquote, to buy their way out of prosecution. The complaint comes amid a growing debate in Louisiana over the propriety of pretrial diversion, an alternative to prosecution that has expanded rapidly in some parishes as district attorneys seek to cope with the state's perennial budget crisis. Diversion programs in some parishes have siphoned funding away from other criminal justice stakeholders, such as public defenders, who rely on money from regularly adjudicated traffic tickets to fund their offices. The diversion programs typically allow motorists to have traffic tickets dismissed or downgraded to non-moving violations in exchange for making a payment to the district attorney's office. 
the asking price in St. Charles and West Baton Rouge parishes is $175. Those district attorneys would receive just $20 from non-diverted traffic tickets, with other court costs being dispersed to other criminal justice entities that receive a cut of each adjudicated case. Uh, so they note, for example, one office received a million dollars and diversion court costs, uh, but spent just $30,000 on salaries, office supplies, and other expenses related to the program. Uh, So that's Louisiana for you. In Maryland, out of Baltimore, we have the fourth rule of Fisk. The Wire was a documentary. And this is another court case that is just a completely nutty-ass ruling it's the Court of Special Pleas uh, hearing, or ruling rather, in Richard Lewis versus the state of Maryland. And I'm not going to get, I'm going to give you the opinion. I'm not going to give you too many details from the case, but the gist of it is this possession of less than 10 ounces of marijuana has been decriminalized. You cannot go to jail for it. But they decided that it's still probable cause for you to be searched because. I don't really know. So one particular quote from the story, which again, this is all bonkers to me, says, quote, that the possession of 10 grams or less of marijuana has been decriminalized does not change our analysis. The Court of Appeals has stated that despite the decriminalization of possession of less than 10 grams of marijuana, the odor of marijuana remains evidence of a crime and provides probable cause to search. In so concluding, the court noted that the odor of marijuana, subquote, may be just as indicative of other crimes, such as the possession of more than 10 grams of marijuana or possession of marijuana with the intent to distribute, as it is of possession of less than 10 grams of marijuana. And it is unreasonable to expect law enforcement officers to determine, based on odor alone, the difference between 9.99 grams or less of marijuana and 10 grams of marijuana. Now, here's the thing decriminalizing weed, the entire purpose behind it is to reduce the number of citizen interactions with the police because that tends to end poorly, especially if you happen to be a person of color. But now you're essentially saying that the legislature trying to make something not a crime uh, doesn't actually have any effect as far as police authority goes to search you. So we'll give you a link to the opinion. It's nutty as hell, utterly fucking stupid. Uh, Out of Missouri, we do have some good news. Don't let it be said I don't report good news. So in St. Louis, prosecutors will no longer prosecute baby weed, so small amounts of weed. From that story, it says, quote, St. Louis prosecutors will no longer pursue charges for most low-level marijuana offenses, joining their counterparts in some other cities who have opted to redirect their resources toward more serious crimes. Circuit attorney Kim Garner said in an interview Wednesday that her office will review more than 1,200 pending cases in which suspects are accused of possessing less than 100 grams of marijuana. She says most will be dismissed except those with aggravating circumstances. So 100 grams is about three ounces, give or take. My my gram to ounce conversion is off a bit, but that's a big deal. Uh, Out of New York, in New York City, this is a reminder that there are no parties in America with any degree of power who actually believe in having less police or government surveillance. Uh, And Bill de Blasio is proof. So from that story, it says, quote, the New York Police Department has quietly expanded its gang database under Mayor Bill de Blasio, targeting tens of thousands of young people of color for increased surveillance, even in the absence of criminal conduct. 
New Yorkers have been added to the NYPD gang database under de Blasio at a rate of 342 people per month, nearly three times the rate of the prior decade. That's despite both historically low crime levels and the fact that gang-motivated crime makes up less than 1% of all reported crime in New York City. New details about who the NYPD includes in the vast database were revealed in response to a public records request by CUNY School of Law professor Babe Howell, who shared the information with The Intercept. The data reveals that as of February 2018, there were 42,334 people in the database, a 70% increase since de Blasio took office in January of 2014. Now, here's a kicker. 99% of those added over that four-year period were not white. I'm sure that will shock the hell out of you. Uh, And the NYPD also maintains a database of inactive gang members that includes another 2,706 people. Basically, they're just adding every fucking buddy to the gang database just so they have an excuse to monitor people and create reasonable suspicion to pat them down willy-nilly as they see fit. Total violation of the Fourth Amendment. Uh, Out of St. Lawrence County... A district attorney has been suspended from the practice of law, which is actually surprising. From that story, it says, quote, Mary Rain has been suspended from practicing law in New York State for two years for misconduct during her tenure as St. Lawrence County District Attorney. The New York State Supreme Court Appellate Division, 3rd Judicial Department, issued the ruling on Thursday. The report says two petitions alleged, subquote, 29 distinct violations of the rules of professional conduct. In the ruling, the court noted that Rain tried to blame her conduct on negligence, but they didn't buy it. Subquote, turning to the issue of the appropriate disciplinary sanction, we have considered respondents' submission in mitigation, wherein she largely contends that much of her misconduct was the result of her mere negligence as opposed to intentional conduct. However, it is evident from the record that throughout much of the events underlying these proceedings, Respondent acted with either the intent or knowledge of the effect her actions would have. Moreover, at the time of her misconduct, Respondent was a seasoned prosecutor with extensive experience and the majority of her violations evidence a pattern of disregard for defendants' rights. Now, you might think that two years of being suspended is not that big a deal, but it's actually a very big deal because prosecutors are rarely punished for their prosecutorial misconduct. And that's noted in this opinion obliquely. They don't come out and say we don't normally punish people, but listen to this. Continues, quote, further, respondents' lack of candor during petitioner's investigation into her actions further demonstrates her inability to take responsibility for her own actions. Beyond the misconduct underlying these proceedings, we note that respondents' misconduct is aggravated by, among other things, her disciplinary history, which includes three prior admonitions and a letter of caution. So at least four different times the state bar has taken an action against her but they let all that ride. She still continued to be a DA, still continued to fuck over defendants and violate their constitutional rights until this happened. Uh, So that's out of New York. In New Mexico, out of Albuquerque, police summarily executed 19-year-old Mary Hawks, but no one knows what happened because magically all five body cams malfunctioned at the same time. Now, I'm going to give you a link to Radley Balco, who has the, uh, the column in the Washington Post called The Watch. 
talked about Radley before. He is phenomenal. His column includes links to other stories, which is why I'm going to give you that because you're going to have all of the information linked there. But I went searching for some of the source material, and I want you to hear the explanations for what happened with these different cameras. So this is a recollection of all of the stuff that was told to an attorney when she attempted to get the video because she needs that to understand what the hell happened. It says, quote, For all these officers, and there were five in the vicinity that could or should have captured the shooting, there are no clear recordings from the incident that we've been provided. All five were wearing body cameras. The sergeant on scene, Brian Maurer, said he believed he turned his camera on during the incident, but the department later said he hadn't recorded anything. In his deposition, the sergeant testified that his camera had never malfunctioned like that before. But we don't have the camera, as it existed at the time of the shooting, to determine if the alleged malfunction was real or not. There was another officer who was standing nearby when the shooting happened. He originally said he hadn't seen the shooting at all. But when he was confronted with the only images of the shooting that we have, vague footage from one officer's lapel camera who was parking his car at the time of the shooting, it was clear that this officer lied about not seeing anything. The footage showed that he was pointing a gun towards Mary Hawks when she was shot. So there's no question that he witnessed the shooting. That officer did record, but APD only produced a video with 10 seconds of buffer captured. On taser cameras, the default setting is 30 seconds of buffer but his only had 10, and the 20 seconds that were missing would have captured the shooting. APD said it was because he'd powered his camera off all the way, defeating the buffer feature. We thought, great, we should be able to tell if that's in fact a reasonable story if we had the actual camera as it existed at the time of the shooting. But again, we don't. Yet another officer could have captured important footage of the shooting, but his recording was so heavily pixelated, it was impossible to glean anything from the images. No one in the department had ever seen footage corrupted like this before, and APD claimed that this was the result of yet another malfunctioning camera. Again, APD did not preserve the camera so we could actually test this. The fourth officer said he was recording on his camera at the time of the incident, but there was no video on his camera's SD memory card. To explain the discrepancy, Albuquerque police claimed that there was a malfunction with the camera, but we couldn't examine it as it existed at the time of the shooting to test the theory because the police did not tag the camera into evidence. Instead, they let the officer keep it and continue to record unrelated incidents that followed. Apparently, the camera was good enough to return to the officer and worked on those occasions. Finally, there's the shooting officer himself. He claimed that his cord had become unplugged. The department sent his camera off to Taser for analysis, and Taser found that the camera had been powered on within eight minutes of the shooting, but was powered off in the moments before. Taser couldn't tell whether the camera had been powered off by the cord disconnecting or a power switch. It did say that his cord on his camera was functional. So you have police killing off a teenage girl, five different officers, all with body cams, who theoretically should have caught something, and magically, all five malfunction. Uh, so that's in New Mexico, out of North Carolina. Oh, did I just have those back? I did. We did New York before New Mexico. I apologize. I normally do these in alphabetical order. Hopefully you weren't paying that close attention. Uh, out of North Carolina, in Alamance County, being Catholic is probable cause to be searched. I was actually going to give you full quotes from the story, but they're so long and utterly fucking ridiculous 
that I'm not going to bother. I'm just going to give you a link to the story. Basically, a former United States Marshal was training the uh, Alamance County law enforcement, the sheriff's office, the Graham and Burlington police and everything else about Mexican cartels. And a big chunk of the presentation was patron saints and how if you happen to pray uh, to the patron saint Santa Muerte or uh, St. Jude or Jesus Malverde, According to this particular guy doing the training, that means you are in fact a criminal and police should somehow find probable cause to search uh, because he claims that you worshiping the patron saints is not good enough and yet he's teaching that to the police anyway because they're going to now use that against you. Uh, out of Durham, there's a look into uh, jail suicides and years of inaction by our sheriffs and our county commissioners. From that story, it says, quote, Durham County officials knew about suicide hazards in jail cells for two decades, but failed to fully fix window bars and ventilation grates that 12 people used to hang themselves from 1998 to 2017. Uh, and it goes on from there. So basically, the reporter, Virginia Bridges, who does a lot of really good work involving our criminal justice system, um, basically found that they would ask for some money and fix a couple windows and ask for more money and fix a couple other windows. And there's still a bunch of windows that are not fixed. And you have these 12 folks who've killed themselves in jail before they've even been convicted of anything uh, since 1998. So those are the stories out of North Carolina in Ohio. Uh, we have good news. Don't let it be said I don't report good news out of Columbus. There's a profile in Politico magazine on Joe DeLoss, who is a uh, restaurateur, as they would say. From the story, it says, quote, Each year, about 23,000 inmates leave prisons in Ohio, and 640,000 are released from prisons across the country. Nearly two-thirds of them can't find a job within the first year, and a majority of them are arrested again within three years. Not getting a job doesn't hurt just the former inmate. It hits the whole economy. One think tank estimated that the cost of not hiring felons is $87 billion in gross domestic product every year. Governments have tried to address the issue. In 2016, the Obama administration invited corporations to sign a fair chance business pledge to help reintegrate felons into civilian life. Major companies, such as Total Wine & More, promised to hire people with criminal records. Coke Industries and Walmart no longer perform a background check until after an applicant has been offered a job. Joe DeLoss, a serial entrepreneur in Columbus, viewed former prisons as business assets, not charity cases. He knew they were potentially loyal employees who would not take an entry-level job for granted. DeLoss aspired to build a company with a double mission, make money using a workforce the rest of the private sector had largely ignored, and he wanted to accomplish the goal using a somewhat unusual product, spicy fried chicken. Four years ago, he opened his first location of Hot Chicken Takeover. Today, about 70% of his 150 employees are people who were once imprisoned or homeless, recovering addicts, and others who have struggled to find employment. He also has a thriving business that has three restaurants and ambitions to expand regionally and even nationally. So kudos to him. Uh, in Oregon... Got three stories this week. Lots of stuff happening in Oregon. In Marion County, there's no charges for beating the shit out of homeless people. Uh, we mentioned this in uh, episode 69. The Marion County deputy who was on camera 
uh, basically beating the daylights out of a homeless guy who was interrupting a negotiation happening elsewhere. From the story, it says, quote, a Marion County deputy caught on video repeatedly punching a homeless person in the head during an arrest earlier this month in the Salem area won't face any criminal charges because the deputy reasonably believed the blows were necessary to make the arrest, according to the county district attorney's office. Patrol Deputy Jacob Thompson didn't violate any laws regarding use of force based on the evidence gathered in the case. The case review included interviews with 18 witnesses and the reports from all five deputies involved in the arrest. But it's unclear if Tessa Lovelace, the person hit and arrested, was among those spoken to by authorities. Now, we'll note this decision was announced late on a Friday night so that no one would actually cover this in the news media. Uh, Out of Portland, this is another, I guess we should call this another third rule of fist because this happened in episode 51. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, Portland Police Commander Steve Jones crashed a Portland Police Bureau vehicle into a telephone pole early Thursday morning and was arrested by Oregon State Police on a DUI charge. Jones, a 23-year veteran with the Portland Police Bureau, is now on paid administrative leave. It's paid vacation pending an investigation into the crash. Here's the kicker. He is the commander of the Professional Standards Division. Uh, He had been assigned an unmarked and city-owned Ford Interceptor utility vehicle, the same type of SUV that police officers often drive while on duty. The car was assigned to him because his position required him to be on call to respond to crime scenes at all times. He was off-duty when he careened into the pole around 1.55 in the morning. PPB did not release a mugshot or Jones's blood alcohol level, saying the agency is not in charge of the criminal investigation. Oregon State Police did not immediately respond to questions about the case. It's interesting because if you or I were pulled over for drunk driving, our mugshot would be all over the papers the very next morning. But yeah, back in episode 51, we had that Durham deputy who was drunk and crashed into a a tractor trailer. So it seems to be a common thing. Uh, Also out of Portland, we have the first rule of Fisk again. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. And this one is also a reminder that the Second Amendment is only for white people. As police summarily executed a guy who was trying to break up a fight, a gun dropped to the ground, and as he tried to pick it up, police shot him dead. From the story, it says, quote, A Portland man fatally shot early Friday outside a sports bar near Portland State University by campus police officers was a U.S. postal worker and father of three daughters who served in the Navy and married his high school sweetheart. Friends identified the man as Jason Washington, 45. Friend Alyssa Lesane said Washington was also a grandfather to a five-year-old girl who, subquote, hero worshipped the ground he walked on. She described him as a Franklin High School graduate and an upstanding man who is proud to have helped raise a household full of women. Police have not yet released Washington's name nor any details of the circumstances that led to his death. Two Portland State University police officers have been placed on paid administrative leave, that is, paid vacation for killing somebody, uh, after at least one of them opened fire near the cheerful tortoise around 1.30 in the morning. The officers have been identified as Sean McKenzie, who has been with the Campus Public Safety Office since 2002, and James Dewey, who's been there since 2014. Both became armed sworn officers in 2016. The school's board of trustees voted to allow their campus officers to carry firearms two years earlier. McKenzie and Dewey were near the bar when they noticed a fight, Portland police said. At some point, at least one of the officers shot a man who was at the scene. 
Massane and Mike Joseph, another friend and former co-worker of Washington's, said Washington wasn't involved in the fight and was trying to break it up. A witness told Oregon Public Broadcasting that the man wasn't fighting and was shot after a holstered handgun he was carrying fell onto the ground and he appeared to be trying to pick it up. After the officers yelled there was a gun, there was no apparent hesitation before the gunfire. So this guy is now dead. We'll let you know how the whitewash of that investigation turns out. Out of Pennsylvania, uh, there's an analysis done by The Appeal, basically that police are using hate crime laws in that state to punish folks who end up saying mean things to the police. Uh, So they have the story of Robbie Sanderson, who was arrested for retail theft. And during the arrest, he called the police Nazis, skinheads, and the Gestapo. So for that, he was charged with a hate crime. Uh, They also cover Sonetta Amoroso, who during her arrest on unrelated charges said, I'm going to kill all you white bitches and death to all you white bitches. So she got charged with multiple counts of felony ethnic intimidation. Uh, they also cover Anthony Payne, or Seneca Anthony Payne, who called a police officer a Gandhi motherfucker during a welfare check at Payne's home. So he was charged with ethnic intimidation. Now, the funny part about all of this, and I say funny, haha, but it's really not, is that you know these charges are bullshit because despite all of these folks being charged with various capacities of ethnic intimidation, in 2016, the year these charges happened, the Pennsylvania State Police Uniform Crime Reporting System indicates that zero hate crimes occurred in their respective jurisdictions. So basically, this is all First Amendment protected expression, but police are trying to find a way to lock you up anyway, uh, just because you hurt them in the fifis. Uh, In Lancaster... We have the first rule of Fisk again. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. This one was probably the story of the week. That and the Washington killing in Oregon, these were the two that that most folks were paying attention to. Uh, Sean Williams was sitting on a curb trying to comply with police commands to avoid being tased. And you can hear on the video recorded by a bystander, one officer says, put your legs straight out. And another one says, put your legs straight out and cross them now. And you see kind of like a moment's hesitation, like the guy's thinking about how to respond. He goes to cross his legs and then he's instantly tased. Uh, So we're going to give you a link to the Washington Post story that has some of the background as well as the video. I encourage you to watch the video. The guy doesn't die. So, I mean, I guess that's a a good thing. Um, But it's another highlight that police like to play this fucked up game, as Simon says, And we're lucky that it wasn't lethal this time, because if you go back to like the Daniel Shaver killing, it's the same type of deal where you have police giving conflicting orders. The guy tries to comply with them and is shot dead. In this case, the guy was tased and he wasn't even charged with anything. He was arrested on drug possession and public drunkenness, which were both unrelated to Thursday's call, which was reporting that supposedly he was trying to fight. Uh, So that's out of Lancaster in Philadelphia. Killer cop Michael Rosfeld is facing homicide charges. We talked about him a couple weeks ago. Uh, He's the East Pittsburgh officer who fatally shot unarmed 17-year-old black kid Antoine Rose Jr. in the back as the kid was running away. Uh, Rosfeld apparently told investigators that Rose turned his hand towards Rosfeld as he's running away. Now, let me pause. You've seen the video. There's nothing in the video that shows this kid turning his hand towards the cop. 
Uh, Rosfeld also claims that there was something in his hand that he considered to be a gun. And of course, after video frames were produced and said, hey, there's nothing in his hands. What the fuck are you talking about? He changed his story because he's a fucking liar in addition to being a murderer. Uh, so he's been charged. From the story, it says, quote, a medical examiner determined Rose was struck three times. He was struck in the cheek, exiting through his nasal passage. He was struck in the right elbow from behind. And he was struck in the mid-back, which was the fatal shot. The bullet lodged in Rose's chest and was determined to be from Rossfeld's service weapon. So the fact he's even charged at all is progress. I hope they strap his ass to a chair. We'll see. Uh, out of South Carolina in Anderson County, you got the first rule of Fisk again. In this case, a sheriff's deputy nearly ran over a 15-year-old girl while she was trying to get on the school bus because she wasn't paying any fucking attention to where she was going. The deputy, not the girl. From the story, it says, quote, A sheriff's deputy's car nearly crushed a girl as she boarded a school bus in South Carolina, as seen on surveillance video obtained by ABC Charlotte affiliate WSOC-TV. Newly released video from the incident shows the unnamed Anderson County Sheriff's Office deputy driving past the parked bus and grazing Pendleton High School student Jordan Reyes, 15, who was waiting at a bus stop. Jordan, after the officer ran over her foot, is now doing okay. The deputy driving the car had been distracted by the GPS, according to WSOC, adding that the deputy has been suspended. In response to the close call, the Anderson County Sheriff's Office has teamed with Jordan to create instructional videos targeted at first responders. Now, you'll notice the deputy's not been identified, which would not be the case for you or me had we run over a school kid trying to get on the bus. Uh, that's out of South Carolina and Washington in Seattle. Uh, the ICE prosecutor, the guy who helps send people away when they cross into the country illegally, he is going to prison for four years for stealing the identities of people that he prosecuted. From the press release on the ICE.gov website, it says, quote, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement's former chief counsel for the Seattle Office of Principal Legal Advisor was sentenced to 48 months in prison for a wire fraud and aggravated identity theft scheme involving the identities of numerous aliens. The investigation into Rafael Sanchez's scheme began with ICE's Office of Professional Responsibility. The office received information that Sanchez was operating a financial account for outside consulting services in a suspicious manner, and its internal investigation led to criminal charges being filed against him. Sanchez, who was responsible for immigration removal proceedings in Alaska, Oregon, and Washington, admitted in his plea agreement that he intentionally devised a scheme to defraud aliens in various stages of immigration removal proceedings with ICE. Sanchez used the personally identifiable information of those aliens to open lines of credit and personal loans in their names, manipulated their credit bureau files, and transferred funds to and purchased goods for himself using credit cards issued in their names. Once the accounts were approved and opened, Sanchez made charges or drew payments totaling more than $190,000 in the names of aliens to himself or entities that he controlled, often using PayPal and mobile point-of-sale devices from Amazon, Square, Venmo, and Coin to process fraudulent transactions. In a number of cases, Sanchez purchased goods online in the names of aliens and had them shipped to his residence. Sanchez also employed credit monitoring services and corresponded with credit bureaus in the names of aliens to help conceal his fraud scheme. Sanchez also claimed three aliens as relative dependents on his tax returns for 2014, 2015, and 2016. Holy shit. 
So you basically imagine a prosecutor stealing the identities of defendants and using that to enrich himself to the tune of at least $190,000. That's what's happening with ICE out of Washington. Uh, So folks, that's the state-by-state criminal justice fuckery for this week. Every now and again, we cover stuff in other countries. Uh, In this case, we're going to the United Kingdom out of Manchester, where I'm not going to give you the whole story because it's a long story, but it's colorful. I want you to go read the whole story because it's absolutely fucking ridiculous. Uh, some key excerpts. It says, quote, a police woman and her married police constable lover have been jailed over a drug-fueled affair in which she was pictured with a line of cocaine on her breasts. WPC Carrie Reeve and fellow constable Adam Jackson, who both worked for Greater Manchester Police, sent each other text messages boasting about the amount of drugs they were consuming. Alexander Langhorn, the prosecutor, told Manchester Crown Court that Jackson had begun to ask Daniel Wade, a local drug dealer, for cocaine on an occasional basis starting in November of 2015. At the same time, he entered into an extramarital affair with Reeve. The pair were arrested last February as Jackson emerged from Reeve's home in Middleton, Greater Manchester, with a bag containing cocaine, MDMA, and Viagra pills. And it goes on from there. There's a lot of shit. Uh, but basically, Reeve was sentenced to 31 weeks in jail, and Jackson got one and a half years because he had cocaine on multiple occasions. Uh, so that is everything. That is the criminal justice fuckery for this particular week. Let's go ahead and jump into our Law 140 and talk a little bit about the retirement of Justice Anthony Kennedy. <laughs> So I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, this isn't a true Law 140. I'm not teaching you about the law because a lot of people freaked out when this got announced and asked me questions about it, and I decided that I would put it together into a Law 140 package and and talk. So there's going to be a little bit of law here, but not too much. Uh, So, of course, earlier this week, Justice Anthony Kennedy, who has been on the Supreme Court for almost my entire life, and I'm 37, Uh, announced that he was going to retire. This is something that's been speculated about for a while. There were several think pieces under Obama's term on whether or not Kennedy would retire or stick it out until a Republican president was in place. There was a separate raft of think pieces last year to uh, see whether or not he was going to retire. So, of course, this week he made it official. And, of course, folks had meltdowns, as I mentioned. But there are a few things to keep in mind about this. Well, let's talk about Kennedy in general. So Kennedy had no discernible judicial philosophy that you could find. I, I would I would uh, challenge anyone who tells me that he had a principle uh, of some sort. To let me know what that is, because it's tough to kind of figure it out. Keep in mind, this guy was the third pick to have this particular seat. Reagan first picked Robert Bork, who was voted down as being too, uh, too extreme. And then after that, I can't remember the guy's first name, but there's Ginsburg, another Ginsburg, who had been nominated, who apparently smoked weed, and that was bad enough. Can you imagine that? Fucking smoking weed is such a scandal that you lose your your nomination to the Supreme Court. Um, So then Kennedy was third. He was the third pick. He got confirmed. Generally conservative. I mean, that was the expectation. Uh, Also got uh, uh, sided with the liberals on some cases. Uh, Casey versus Planned Parenthood, 
so that you had the issue about abortion, uh, issues involving bullying. So, uh, and I mean bullying in a metaphorical sense, not like physically bullying, but like gay marriage is probably the biggest one. Uh, just gay rights in general. Kennedy authored all of the opinions relating to gay rights, Romer versus Evans, uh, U.S. versus Windsor, Obersfeld, all of them. Kennedy wrote them all. Um, but beyond that, the guy really had no discernible judicial philosophy. And it was because of that that he was able to be kind of the swing vote on the court. You have four more or less consistent conservatives. You have four more or less consistent liberals. And Kennedy kind of had a foot in both camps depending on what the issue was. You know, he sided with conservatives on D.C. versus Heller that decided that there was, in fact, an individual Second Amendment right to own a firearm. Uh, you go back to like Bush v. Gore that ended the recount in Florida. He sided with the conservatives on that. Uh, but then he sided with the liberals on, again, the gay marriage stuff in particular uh, and several other items. So what does it mean for the court? What is this particular situation? I mean, this is without question. This is what I, I've decided to title the episode, A Jurisprudential Earthquake. This is the most consequential retirement from the Supreme Court in my lifetime. And again, I'm 37. So if you're 37 or younger, it's going to be the most consequential in your lifetime as well uh, because of the fact that you've had this four to four with one in the middle balance on the court for pretty much our entire lives. You know, the Rehnquist court was slightly more conservative, but you had this general balance for most of that time. It's because of that balance, because of how the Supreme Court rose in stature among the public that I believe they were willing to wade into Bush v. Gore in the first place, way back in 2000. The court wouldn't have done that if it had a perception of being overly conservative or overly liberal. I just don't think they would have taken the case. Um, so what that means, of course, is that the court is likely going to shift in a conservative direction for the foreseeable future. Now, what does that mean on a particular case-by-case -case basis? Don't know. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But the next oldest justice is Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who I get the sense is determined to stay as long as she can until hopefully a Democrat can choose a replacement for her. After that, you have, it's either Breyer or Thomas, I don't know, but the next conservative who's up there in age would be Clarence Thomas. So you've got two liberals that are old, Ginsburg and Breyer, potentially looking to step down at some point, theoretically, maybe during Donald Trump's term, I sure as hell hope not. Uh, but then Clarence Thomas would be the next conservative that could theoretically be replaced with a moderate or a liberal to push the court back towards this kind of equilibrium that it's had. Um, so politically, that's kind of the outcome. Now, on a case-by-case -case basis, what does that mean? In all likelihood, it means there's not going to be a whole lot of big changes to stuff that's already been decided. You know, everyone is freaking out that Roe v. Wade is going to be overturned. I, I'm, you can quote me. I don't think that's going to happen. And the reason why is that Chief Justice John Roberts is going to become the swing vote. All right. During his confirmation proceedings, he described Roe v. Wade as settled law. That's, a, that's magic language that justices use when they say a case has been decided and it's over and done with and it's not going to be overturned. You can talk about applications of it like happened in Casey, like happened in the NIFLA decision this past week. Uh, but the core precedent is not going anywhere. So for Roberts to say that, I think, is a big deal because there's no real evidence that he's a personally dishonest person. He's going to be a man of his word and stick to it. In addition to that, Roberts is also guided by public perception. 
So Roe v. Wade, even though abortion is still heavily fought over, most people, if you ask them in a fairly worded survey, you know, do you think a woman should have a right to an abortion or not? Most folks are going to say yes. Now they're going to fight over their particulars. They'll fight over whether or not taxpayers should fund it and how far along should it be before you can't have one anymore. But the key piece of Roe v. Wade is whether or not you have the right to an abortion. Most people in the country are going to say yes. And Roberts is not going to accept a case to have that overturned. He's going to vote with the four liberal justices to keep that in place if something like that ever came to the court. Um, Same deal with gay marriage. You know, it's something where hypothetically he ruled on the losing side and Obergefell and everything else. But now that it's done, now that 70, 80, 90 percent of the country is supportive of same sex marriage, he's not going to overturn that. You also have to realize the practicalities of it. If you overruled Roe v. Wade, you would functionally destroy the pro-life grifting machine. If you overruled the same-sex marriage decisions, you would destroy a lot of these nonprofits that sprung up to bitch and moan about same-sex marriage. Because the entire reason why they exist and are able to make money is because they've got the Supreme Court there as a boogeyman. If you take that away, there's no reason to keep donating to them anymore. You know, So I, I just don't think from a political standpoint or a personal standpoint or a jurisprudential standpoint, there is any reason to think that Roe v. Wade is actually going to be in jeopardy or that same-sex marriage is actually going to be in jeopardy. So I realize that's cold comfort to the people who are actually affected. They don't believe me and the words on my podcast when it's their livelihoods, their very existence that is at stake sometimes. Um, but I just don't think you're going to see big rollbacks of the civil rights protections that have happened over the past however many years. Now, where you could potentially see things being an issue are, are going to be issues surrounding the interpretation of congressional statutes. I'm sure they're going to continue to fuck up the Fourth Amendment, uh, but part of that also depends on who gets appointed to the court. You know, a lot of people hate Neil Gorsuch. Because he's he's got the stolen seat. He's you know Republicans stole Obama's seat, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I've already been on record that I think that's totally ridiculous. Should Republicans have given Garland a hearing? Yes, and then they should have voted him down because Merrick Garland was terrible. I stand by that. But this notion that a Supreme Court seat belongs to a president, I think, is ludicrous. Um, and frankly, I think Gorsuch was a good choice because Gorsuch is not a like if you're looking at judicial philosophy. From the standpoint of a conservative, he's not the type of conservative that has no like logical basis for his thoughts. He's what you would consider a natural rights conservative justice. So that's how you end up with things like the opinions I've noted in past podcasts where he really thinks we go overboard with the level of deference we give to law enforcement. You don't see that often. It's a very libertarian, small L libertarian approach. If somehow Trump appoints someone like him, I'm going to be very happy. If he appoints someone like John Roberts, I'm going to be very happy because those justices have over the, you know, there are a few cases where I would disagree, but for the most part, they followed what I would consider a fair interpretation of the Constitution, how the Constitution should actually be interpreted. But then you could also get a fucking nut. I mean, this is Trump making the nomination. You know, I I said this on Twitter, my definitive take on Donald Trump appointing justices is the same as my definitive take on gophers flying airplanes. Yes, there is a statistically non-zero chance that you will make a safe flight, nothing will crash and burn, but I'm not going to be happy about it. I'd just as sure rather not see it happen, you know? 
I don't know if we're going to get another John Roberts or if we're going to get a Harriet Myers. I have no idea. And Mitch McConnell, who, you know, love him or hate him, I'm sure he's focused on getting a decent justice. He can't force Trump to appoint someone to his liking. You know, he can not hold hearings or whatever else. But the fact of the matter is, whoever Trump nominates is going to be approved by the Senate. So we'll see what happens. You know, but my main concern over the course of however long this new justice getting appointed is, is going to be those cases where the Supreme Court rules that you can't do something because it violates the Constitution, because those are the cases that matter. You know, Supreme Court decisions that are interpreting statutes, they matter in a sense, but those statutes can always be amended. And then all of a sudden that case is no longer useful as precedent and the statute is different. So we need to get back in the habit of going through the political branches of government, going through the Congress, convincing them to actually legislate. Same deal with constitutional rights. If a right isn't found in the Constitution, that doesn't matter because you can always create a statutory right that gives you those exact same protections. Now, it's not going to be as firm. You know, it can be repealed with a majority vote most of the time compared to the Constitution, which has a more elaborate amendment process. But if you put the effort into electing better legislators, you can get those exact same protections. The only part where once something is walled off, it's done, and the most enduring Supreme Court decisions are the ones where they say you can't do something because it violates a particular section of the Constitution. Those things are never going to change. You know what I mean? They become precedent for all eternity. So we'll see what kind of justice Trump nominates uh, to deal with that. Now, I mentioned whoever he appoints or, or, or nominates is going to be approved by the Senate. It brings up the question, what can Democrats do to stop this? And the answer is nothing. They can't do anything at all without help from the Republicans because you have 51 Republican senators. You also have the vice president who votes in the case of a tie. So essentially it's a 52nd Republican vote. Subtract from that John McCain, who's in bad health, but he's not resigned. So he'll probably make it back for a confirmation vote. But functionally, you have 50 Republicans and 49 Democrats. That means you have to lose two on the Republican side. Because again, losing one puts it at 49-49, Pence breaks the tie. You would have to lose two, so it becomes 48 Republicans, 49 Democrats, for a nomination to go down. And I just don't think that's going to happen. I mean, you have... um, Gosh, what is her name? The one from Maine. I don't know. The senator from Maine whose name I forget. It's either, I think it's Susan Collins. Yeah, Susan Collins. Um, She's going to be one of the ones to focus on. Murkowski out of Alaska is going to be one of the ones to focus on because both of them have been on record as being in favor of a woman's right to choose. Uh, But I just don't think that anyone who's going to be nominated is going to be... Uh, sufficiently egregious that they're going to have a reason to vote against them. I think they're going to be sufficiently vague that Collins and Murkowski will both vote yes. Uh, You have Corker and Flake, who both have been kind of uh, speaking freely, if you will, about the assorted people uh, in the caucus. But nonetheless, they're going to like whoever Trump nominates, assuming Trump nominates from the list that he's already circulated. And then you've got red state Democrats like Joe Manchin in West Virginia, Heidi Heitkamp in North Dakota. Um, what's the woman's name in Missouri? I'm, I'm doing terrible with my names of politicians, man. I don't know why. 
Uh, but you got people who are up for re-election this year who are going to be put in a tough position if they vote against Donald Trump's nominee because they're representing states that went for Donald Trump. So I, I just want you to, you know, certainly do what you want to do to try and stop these particular this particular nomination. You know, if you want to blow up phone lines or emails or, or whatever else, don't let me discourage you from doing that. But mentally, you need to prepare yourself that this is a, it's already done. We don't know who it's going to be, but the end result is already foreordained by virtue of the political numbers. Now, that brings up the question, how do we reduce the degree of you know, sheer terror and panic that comes from appointing a Supreme Court justice? You know, the, the fact is you have one-ninth of one-third of the government retiring. In a normal functioning democracy, one-twenty-seventh of your government going through a change would not affect your life in the slightest. It would be totally normal. But we're in a situation where you have nine robed uh, jurists, nine robed demigods, if you will, who decide for us a lot of very important questions. And to get around that, you got a couple options. One, of course, is to shrink the size and scope of government so there's less shit for the Supreme Court to do. Now, I know that causes shrieks of disgust and outrage by my more left-leaning friends listening to the podcast. I know that's never going to happen. Uh, so some of the other things to look at would be a constitutional amendment. Now, I'm serious about this. So Article 3 of the Constitution provides what is essentially lifetime appointments for Supreme Court justices. As long as they are, you know, have good behavior, they get to stay in office. There's no need for that anymore. You know, that was something that was put in place at the founding because the assumption is the justices would either die or retire fairly young. Life expectancies were pretty radically different compared to now. You know, if you wanted to amend the Constitution so that each justice got a nine-year term, for example, that would mean there would be a new justice every single year. They would still have longer terms than senators and congressmen and presidents. They'd still have a chance to weigh in on a bunch of super weighty issues. But it would just be a normal thing that we're going to go through a constant cycle of new justices. Now, some people might not like that. you got constant churn in the Supreme Court. So double it. Have people be appointed for 18-year terms. That means you got two decades, practically, to make your mark. And you'd have one new appointment every two years that you could set in odd-numbered years so you wouldn't have to deal with this bullshit about whether or not there's an election coming up and let the people speak and blah, blah, blah. Guess what? They spoke through your legislators. That's why you're in office. Um, but doing it that way, every president would get two appointments two, per term, period. You would know going in what's going to happen. You know, Theoretically, someone could die, I guess, but the odds of someone being appointed in their 40s or 50s, not making it 18 years, the odds of that are fairly slim, uh, and you can handle it that way. But the key point is we need to look at potential changes to the system because what we've got is dysfunctional as hell. It makes no sense to me to... I was in court when the Kennedy announcement came down, and when I left the courthouse and looked at my phone... I had a bazillion tweets and text messages and everything else of people like in sheer fucking panic over Kennedy retiring. Now, I mean, I guess I'm not I'm not panicking quite as much because, again, I'm a white Christian male former Republican. 
So there's only so many people that Trump is going to appoint that I would be unhappy with. Uh, But at the same time, it just seems weird to me that so much of the Supreme Court's conduct and composition have such an outlandish effect on our lives. And something's got to change. Something's got to change. But what I would say above all of that, so condensing this political rambling on my part down to the key point, try to keep perspective. Things are not going to be as bad as people say they're going to be. Uh, They're probably not going to be as good as people say they're going to be either. The truth is probably going to be somewhere in the middle. And as this unfolds, as we go through, you know, who do I think is going to replace Kennedy? I'm probably going to say his clerk. I think Kavanaugh is the guy's name. I have a suspicion that when Kennedy met with Trump, he pushed to have his clerk made the nominee. I don't know anything about the guy's jurisprudence, so we'll see. Um, But I think that's going to be the pick. But I think we're all going to be okay. You know, it's going to be a scary period of time until the first Roe v. Wade-like case comes before the Supreme Court and the four liberals plus John Roberts uphold Roe v. Wade, and then everyone will breathe a little sigh of relief until the next justice retires or dies or something. You know, so all right, so that concludes this particular Law 140. I apologize for the rambling, but I wanted to kind of get some Anthony Kennedy stuff on the record to address some of the tweets and DMs that I've got. If you liked what you heard, uh, even if you don't like what it was, but at least liked my presentation of it, do us a favor. Please leave us a five star rating on Apple Podcasts or leave us a written review. And as always, on behalf of myself and Mike the Sound Guy, I hope all of you have a blessed week, and we will talk to you next Monday when we will have our next edition of What the Fisk. Take care.